Welcome to the Control the Room podcast, a series devoted to the exploration of meeting culture and uncovering cures for the common meeting. Some meetings have tight control and others are loose. To control the room means achieving outcomes while striking a balance between imposing and removing structure, asserting and distributing power, leaning in and leaning out, all in the service of having a truly magical meeting. Today, I'm with Vinay Kumar, the founding director of C2C OD, where he enables organizations and their talent to be more effective. He is also the current global chair of the International Association of Facilitators. Welcome to the show, Vinay. Thank you, Douglas. Pleasure to be here. Absolutely. So for starters, let's hear a little bit about how you got your start. How did you find your way into this work of facilitation? Oh, uh, completely by by chance. So I spent about 20 years plus in the corporate world, worked in technology, banking, uh, professional services firm, held management and leadership roles. Uh, and one of the things I was always very passionate about was in, in talent development myself, of course, you know, uh, and developing my own people, putting them through training programs, etc. So I used to sponsor a lot of training programs and bring in external vendors. Uh, and I used to co-facilitate with them or co-train with them as an internal resource. So that's how I actually dipped my toes in facilitation. But um, but to be honest, it started more with training. Uh, I started the tell mode and then realized uh, that you know, people are pretty smart. I don't need to tell them much. I just need to get them to think and started exploring more and more about facilitation. And about 12 years ago, left the corporate world and went full time into training and development and facilitation. And how does... I'm curious about this switching from the tell mode to the thinking mode. How, what what have you found to be the your go-to strategies to to get people thinking versus just kind of trying to shove information in? Yeah, so so I always remember when I used to attend training programs and workshops, right? Uh, I developed this very I, I kind of joke with groups I work with now that say, "Look, folks, I don't want to create death by PowerPoint, and I know all of you." Are very skilled like me uh, with sleeping with our eyes open you know, and having the thousand yard stare. Uh, what I found very useful and engaging when I was sitting as a participant or I still sit as a participant is when people ask great questions and we get into conversations and start thinking about what those answers mean and hearing different perspectives. So I just leverage what I experienced as a participant and what I would like to experience in trying to create that same experience for groups I work with, if that makes sense, right? Absolutely. So I kind of try and model the experience after something that you would appreciate or, or any human. Exactly. And I think there's room for the entire education system, the entire profession, uh, professional training to evolve into this. Uh, of course, when I started my career, I didn't have Google. Uh, <laughs> I, today, people coming in, they can find the answers for themselves. So who are we to stand in front of them and give them the answers? They can actually verify and fact check whether <laughs> our answers are correct and they'll probably find a different opinion as well. So it's better to get them to start thinking. And you've been the international or 
you've been the global chair for the International Association of Facilitation for almost a year now. So you came on just in time for the global pandemic, just to flip everything on its head. Oh, yes. Uh, in fact, I often blame my predecessor. You, you, you arm twisted me into taking this role and you didn't warn me about the pandemic. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but no, but I, it's the International Association of Facilitators. But I uh, sort of got into this, was introduced to the organization about uh, almost nine years ago. Well, no, almost 11 years ago. And I absolutely fell in love with the community. It is a completely volunteer-driven organization. I am a volunteer board member. Every chapter, every region is run by volunteers. And I consider it the best professional family I've been part of. So it's a sort of giving a way of giving back to the profession. And um, particularly now with the pandemic, I think a lot of the facilitator community we thrived and our energy came from working with groups, obviously in a face-to-face -face environment. And we've all had to pivot to completely digital and virtual, like everybody else. Uh, but trying to create that same energy is so critical, right? And, and I think it's, it's been an interesting year, let's put it that way. And what are, what are some of the ways that the IAF has been supportive of members in that transition? Well, <laughs> The, the way we've been is one is at a very tactical and practical level, we created a virtual facilitation resource page on our website mm. where it sort of crowdfunded our own uh, members, started putting posting stuff, resources, links. It is also the community helping each other. We started learning sessions, virtual meetups, and, and very recently, so we, we've always had in October something called uh, Facilitation Week or International Facilitation Week. And this year's Facilitation Week probably has been one of the largest we've had in, in years. Uh, over 260 events, over 5,000 people all around the world coming together, sharing best practices, learning. Uh, so we've been helping them uh, and helping ourselves and the community learn as well. And so if someone's new to the IAF or interested in learning more about it, how might they find out more or what's the best way for them to get started? Oh, uh, just go to our website, www.iaf-world.org. That's our website. and uh, Or they can drop me an email. Uh, they can write to office at iaf-world.org again. Uh, a huge amount of resources available on our website. There's chapters, there's regions. We are, we, have, we are structured in seven global regions. We have chapters uh, and communities all over the world. So you have that face-to-face -face, uh, participation as well. Eventually, I hope, once this pandemic starts to die down, but we'll be able to get groups together and, and learn from each other. There's also a whole professional development pathway for facilitators to uh, enhance their skills. Mm. And so the on the professional development side, that would be training to level up and become certified as a facilitator? Uh, so the IF, uh, we don't provide training programs. We actually endorse. Uh, so we have our IF uh, code of ethics and values as well as our core facilitation competencies published. 
so, so when someone becomes a member, they read and learn about them. So we have uh, IF endorsed facilitation training programs that you could go to to learn the skill. But once you're a practitioner or doing facilitation part-time or full-time or whatever it might be, uh, as an independent practitioner or even within a company, you can go through what we call our uh, a professional development path which is you want to be an endorsed facilitator or a certified professional facilitator. So there's a whole uh, pathway there. Uh, it's, it's grown a lot. I remember when I joined, we only had our CPF, which is our certified professional facilitator accreditation. Now we've added a lot more as well. That's great. And and so with it being a volunteer-led organization, who does the certification or how exactly does that work? Oh, it's, uh, again, complete, it's a peer review. Uh, so mm-hmm. we have what's uh, certified assessors. They go through an assessor path. They themselves are CPFs. So one of the things I got so uh, valuable for me when I first got my CPF was it really was a recognition by my peers uh, that I meet the core facilitation competence. And it's not easy, right? So it is a pretty rigorous process, and I loved it. Uh, I mean, once you've been in the community for a long time, you're a CPF, you've been practicing, uh, you could go ahead and try to become an assessor yourself. And there's a whole assessor development pathway as well. Very cool. Excellent. And I guess uh, switching gears a little bit, but on a similar path, um, what advice might you have for new facilitators? For those folks that are tuning in, maybe they're a leader, you know, not too dissimilar to, to where you were later in your first part of your career before you had switched to becoming a facilitator. They're a leader who are starting to pick up on some of these things and maybe they want to lean in more. Or maybe they're, they're, they're early in their career and they just see facilitation as a, as a path for them. What advice might you have for just getting started and, and what do they need to think about early on to make sure they shape their course correctly? Yeah, I, I, th- I think it's, uh, so one of the things I've seen in the last few years and personally, right, the concept of facilitative leadership or the, uh, the concept of facilitated meetings, I think facilitation is increasing its scope of application. It, it's when groups come together. So I think it's an opportunity for anybody in a hierarchically, in a hierarchical position to use facilitation as a more effective tool to always say to leverage the wisdom of the group. No one individual has the right answer. Uh, and, and particularly today, I think uh, we talk about traditional leadership and I personally believe that leadership is pretty democratized now. You hire good, smart people and if you keep telling them what to do, then you're not leveraging all the, the good, smart that you hired them for. So there is an opportunity to start using facilitation, uh, even as a frontline supervisor, to solve a problem, get a group. And I think, to be honest, we all do it. And, you know, I used to use facilitation, never knew it was called that. Like, for example, I'm sure you do too, Douglas, when you get your team together and you brainstorm, a, you say, let's do a brainstorming session to solve a problem. Guess what? You're using a facilitation method, right? Um, mm-hmm. And there's so many other methods and processes that we can use for effectiveness, decision making, problem solving. I would suggest to any leader, any professional starting up, learn these skills. Learn to ask, not tell. Learn to hold space and listen and let people uh, share. 
learn to hold your own opinion back because I think there's so much power to hearing other people's opinions. And I think personally right now, we need a lot more better listening skills in the world. Hmm. Yeah, we talked a little bit about that in the pre-show chat. I want to dive into that a little bit. Why is it so important right now that we we embrace these listening skills? And why is it just so much more critical in this point in time? Well, look at what's going on around the world. I, I personally, you know, I, I, I won't say it's just the last six months or three months or a year. I think it's been going on since the advent of social media because uh, social media is one way of communicating. People put out opinions out there. You can't really have a live conversation so well using social media tools. So I think we started telling rather than asking questions. It's, it's easier to post your opinion on any of those platforms than to ask a question and hold a debate, right? So uh, I personally think people forgot to listen. We started becoming 140 characters <laughs> uh, focused. And I'm glad they increased that character count, but still not enough. So I, I think it's a great opportunity to get groups in a, and, and hear opinions. We need to start to bet, listen to each other better, ask better questions of each other, hold, uh, understand opinions, probe, clarify. I mean, it's the same thing in one way, Facilitation is growing, but if you take another profession, coaching, right? Coaching is also growing. And coaching is exactly, it's more one-to-one and one-to-small group. But there is also the power of asking good questions and listening. I, I love that you you bring up questions and how questions are so important as far as, you know, how do we practice active listening if we don't have good questions? and. So I'm curious, what are some of your go-to questions to uh, to get a group really thinking? So uh, you know, the first few questions are pretty easy. It's, it's about asking what's happening, why are we doing it this way? Uh, mm. I think what, what else could we be doing? What are we not doing that will help us get better at what we, do, what, what we can do? Uh, what are we missing here, right? So sometimes getting the group to step back and reflect, why are we going... Uh, Sometimes the meta questions are also really cool. I, I like those. Why is it that we are thinking the way we are thinking right now? Mm. Right? And people go, what do you mean? I say, just, listen, just think about this question. Why are we thinking this way? What's, what's making us think this way and move us down this path? And, you know, there's an assumption baked in there. When you ask, why are we thinking this way? There's an assumption that we're all thinking the same. So it's also equally interesting to say, to ask people, how are you thinking about this? Exactly. Take a step back and label it, right? And yeah, I, was, I interviewed Jan Devish not long ago, and he was talking about his different thought patterns that people have. And if the group is operating at different thought patterns, then it's, uh, it's going to be hard to get them aligned because they're seeing the world from different vantage points. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the questions I really liked, and I used it for the first time, to be honest, I heard one of my colleagues, I mean, I read one of her articles and read about this question, and I, I threw it out. Uh, We've had a great conversation here. Everybody seems to be moving in one direction. So what is it that's not being said in this room? Mm. Right? And, and then Sunday, everyone's kind of looking at each other. Who's going to say it? Uh, that, I really found that to be a very powerful question. Yes, 100%. If we can get those elephants kind of out in the open and make it make it safe to talk about them, uh, you know, we can move forward. Even if we don't move forward as far as we had hoped, 
we might have we might have moved in a more provocative direction that's going to create more opportunity in the future. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, uh, I love surfacing the elephant in the room, and it's it's actually easy to surface with the elephant. It's what to do with it once it pops mm-hmm. out, right? Yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> so, so what is what what do we need to think about that the space we've created with that elephant, or or the space we've consumed with it, and how we move through that? Well, one one thing is. There's a precondition, though, to surfacing the elephant in the room, right? Or whatever the elephants that may be. You've got to create a safe environment first. Mm. Otherwise, uh, and also be considered extremely neutral by everybody in that room. Because otherwise, you're causing more damage. I think a lot of facilitators struggle with the elephant in the room because they don't know what to do with it once it pops up. Uh, and they're looking at so having a plan sometimes even holding the position saying okay now that it's out does the group want to solve this now or do we want to take a break and come back to this at a later stage uh, it, it doesn't we have, don't have to go into solution focus right now sometimes uh, it's, it's just the classic uh, change curve right sometimes we just have to uh, get people to share it first then give time for it to marinate, simmer, whatever it might be, or, or people to reflect or sleep on it, and then come back the next day. Yeah. So the ability to take a time out, for example. 100%. Because there could be contradictions there, right? Even though they realize it's the elephant, there might be reasons why that they need it there. You know, uh, Even though this thing causes problems, they might see a justification or a need for it. And so they need to unwrangle and unpack those things, and it takes time. Yeah, and, and one of the other challenges is, as you just said it, Douglas, you said time, right? Uh, if if we surface it and then we're looking at a watch saying, oh my God, I've only got two hours in this group and this thing is going everywhere. And this is what one of my pet peeves is when people say parking lot, let's put it in the parking lot. Oh my God. Uh, it's, it's like, then you can't find the car in the parking lot. I forgot where you parked it. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm, yes, I'm, I'm not dismissing the value of a parking lot, but the elephant definitely doesn't go there. That's too big. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. and, I've seen, and I've seen people do that, say, okay, this is a big issue. I think we need to deal with that later. So let's put it on the parking lot. Uh, it, it'll, it'll consume the entire parking lot. Uh, it's a bit dismissive too, right? It like, is. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, and groups see through it. They say, why did we even bother bringing it up then? Mm. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it's better to acknowledge it and let the group think about what our next steps might be, whether we're going to talk about it at a later date, we're going to unpack it a little bit right now, or but just kind of dismissing it and moving on is, uh, is we're going to make probably make it more difficult for them to bring it up in the future. Yeah, one of my favorite examples I'll, I'll quote was I was running a workshop for a senior leadership team in a resort. Uh, I had flown in, they had all flown in from another town, and we were all there. It was supposed to be just a two-day workshop doing some strategy work. But at the start of day two, this elephant got surfaced. And I really just put it out to the group and said, let's take a break. How does the team want to deal with this? Do do we think it's critical that it has to get dealt with it? So we spent three hours just discussing how to tackle the elephant. And one of the decisions the group said uh, was, Okay, it looks like this is going to take more time. Uh, can we just take a few hours off or go back to our computer, see if we can free up our calendar for another day, extend our reservations in this hotel, and Vinay, can you stay on an extra day and work with us on it? So that two-day workshop became an extra third day because they, that group was so open to tackling it and giving it that time. 
right? Uh, and I think the agility of a facilitator and the group is so critical at that time. I mean, I, I, it's happened really uh, extremely rare. I mean, we've added a few hours here and there, but this was a whole day that the group said, we need to take time to do this. Uh, and, and I still, uh, uh, I am impressed with the group willing to do that. 100%. And, you know, I think it's maybe one of those challenges for facilitators when, from the perspective of the facilitator, we are expected to keep time, we have to design agendas that are tight and and drive to outcomes. But then when this curveball is thrown at us, when this thing when this thing surfaces and emerges, you know, being being willing to adapt on the fly is, uh, I think, I think we're talking about a level of sophistication that really separates, I would say, skilled facilitators from the novice. And so, what kind of advice do you have as far as when you're in that moment and you're you're in that zone of making sure, like, okay, we we got to keep things moving along so we can we can stay on track. Then something surfaces that's clearly going to potentially throw it off track. How do you distinguish between do we actually like spend time on this or do we stick to the agenda? So one is uh, one, one of my fundamental rules is well I do one of three things uh, or sometimes a combination of all three. First is uh, I've learned through experience not to over design the time. Right. So if you start saying for 15 minutes we're going to spend on this, the next 10 minutes we'll move here etc. Right? So if you do that, then you feel the pressure of time even more. So what I often, my design today is, uh, by the end of the day, I want to achieve these outcomes, get the group to achieve these outcomes, because as the group has uh, discussed. Uh, and this is the general flow I'm going to go with. Because for me, the quality of the conversation of the group is more important than the speed of the conversation of the group. So it gives me that little bit of flexibility. The second is, when these curveballs or these things that come up, I often put it out to the group and say, this is what has come up. How does the group want to handle this? And they say, we want to tackle it. And I'll say, as a facilitator, it's my responsibility to let you know that, yes, the group can tackle it. What else from the objectives that the group wants to achieve today do you want to deprioritize or reprioritize? Uh, and does the group think we can achieve all of it today? Um, especially after that incident I just gave you about that leadership team where we took an extra day. Um, that's something that the leadership team decided they needed another day. I just was very lucky to have asked the question, what does the group want to do with it? Do you want to deal with it now, later? Uh, how do you want to tackle it? And, and the group went into this. So I learned a lot from the group uh power of their decision because it's their choice, their ownership, their accountability. So that's the second thing I do, put it back to the group. The third thing that I often do is um, uh, I also try to hold myself as a facilitator in check. Uh, I am, my colleagues will, if you're to speak to my colleagues, they'll tell you I'm pretty, I'm not a very patient person. So I have to be very emotionally aware of how am I feeling? And the more I feel under pressure, I actually become more aware of my assumptions and biases coming into it. So I, I check myself and I, and I put I put my sensing back to the group. Guys, I'm feeling a little bit of pressure here on whether I should tackle this or not. 
And I actually had a once a group said, hey, don't worry about it. It was just a small comment for us. We have, we have discussed this this particular elephant many times in the office. Since you asked, we voiced it, but it doesn't need to get dealt here, so don't stress about it. And so the group gave me that uh, uh, guidance as well, what, what their expectations of me uh, were at that moment. You know, I, I love that you brought up feelings and, and being aware of what's servicing in your body because that's something that people always talk about. Like, it, it's hard to read the read the virtual room or someone someone recently just said it's hard to read the Zoom, which I thought was funny. The thing is, is our body's a, a, a massive antenna. <laughs> and even if we're in a Zoom, those feelings will start to bubble up. And like you were talking about, if we can tune into those, they're amazing signals to tell us how we might we might need to vocalize those things and, and, and do a check-in. So that's amazing. I think that more facilitators should really tune into that because it's a gift that's coming up. And, and if you just let your emotions or your feelings get the best of you, they're going to do a disservice for the team. Yeah. In fact, you just reminded me and, and you, know, you asked me, how do we do this? Right. Uh, how do I do it? One of the things I've learned, and, and this is experience. Uh, and I also learned by errors that I've made, but there's two aspects. There's a doing of a facilitator and the being of a facilitator. Mm. When you're in the doing of the facilitator zone, you're, you're worrying about what's coming next, what, what activity you've got to accomplish. But you've got to pause that and say, I need to be a facilitator here. Uh, you know, the, doing is, the doing can be flexible. The doing can change. But the being has to be consistent, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I love that. It's like we had to show up and we had to tune in to how we're showing up. I, you know, one of the things we love to talk about in our facilitation training is when, when you're walking into the room and, you know, everyone's felt it. You know, you walk into the room and you're like, this room is tense. If you make that assessment, but don't verify that, if you don't check in with the team and say, is it tense in here? then now you've made an assumption about that room that might not be true. And everything you do from then on is going to be impacted by that feeling that you have that, um, like you were saying, that assumption that this, this elephant was a big deal, but they're like, oh, no, we've talked about this a bunch. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, um, so I always ask permission. I, you know, I set the ways of working up front, um, uh, the while with the group, um, and, I, and I hate co- calling them uh, ground rules. And you know, there's such a, it's the group's way of working or how we are all going to collectively do our ways of working. I often say, what is the, how are we going to share, one of the questions I've started to ask them, uh, how are we going to share, pause and share how each one of us is feeling and what we're sensing in the room. I've done that a couple of times and that's been very useful. And, and then I, and often I ask the group to say, how's everybody feeling? Where's everybody at? What are you sensing? Uh, the mood in the room Uh, and after a while I never assume that they want to know mine but but I've always been asked a few people they say so Vinay what's what what about you how are you feeling how are you sensing the room Uh, and that gives me permission to share I'm I'm sensing some tension here I'm sensing uh, some people uncomfortable with the pace or whatever it might be and then that just uh, opens it up for everybody what about when you have you ever had situations where you do, you pulled what are people feeling and sensing and you you feel like they're only scratching the surface so they're not are really like opening up? Yeah, yes, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I might mean, just ask. Mm. So is that 
what is you ask a couple of probing questions if it doesn't go anywhere it doesn't go anywhere i mean uh, it, it's there's a few people who may open up there's a few people who may not and we've got to be open to the diversity of thinking styles and how much people want to share of themselves in that room yeah this whole segment that we've been kind of delving into has really been kind of touching on this vulnerability of the facilitator and I think it's really important for facilitators to to balance the honing of their craft and the professionalism that they bring to the situation, but also this vulnerability of, you know, showing people that they're human, you know, like, because it's really easy to fall down this trap of like, I've got to be perfect, I got to show up and I've got to run this thing versus being human, showing people that you're fallible and that you're, while you have studied this stuff and you've got a lot of experience, like, there's no such thing as the perfect expert, and if we try to if we try to hold on too tightly to that, then we can't be curious about the humans. We can't. We're going to hold on to our agendas too tightly. We're not going to allow things to slip and be be fuzzy or squishy. Um, and so, I just wanted to get your thoughts on this notion of being vulnerable as a facilitator. Yeah, that comes back to my earlier thought, right? So, if you if you're focusing on the doing part only, mm. you know, that's when you you want to perfect the. So, so the way I kind of do it, I, mean, I, I do some content, I do a lot of content-based programs at Deliver as well. And, and one of the things that I'm often called upon is very, very simple, uh, high-impactful presentations for senior executives, right? So I do some work around it. And one of the ways I always say is uh, the doing is the content, the being is the delivery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... What happens as a facilitator then, if you're facilitating a group, your methods, processes, tools, your structure of, is the doing part, but your doing is only one piece. You can do everything else and still not eat your outcomes because it's the being, the human element of participants and you, the group you're in service to, and the group that has to come into play. I completely agree with you, I think. Um, now. Uh, there's a caveat there. We can't overdo the being as well. If you only become the, uh, I mean, when you work with a bunch of engineers <laughs> or uh, being in Bangalore, I have a lot of IT companies as clients. And if you spend a lot of time getting into the, so let's discuss your feelings, etc. They say, yeah, what do we want to get? A, we want to get a move on on the action here. We want to accomplish this. So it's being able to bring it in when appropriate, when you're sensing that room. Uh, uh, so it's, it's, it's a very fine balance between the two. You know, it takes intuition, I think. That's part of reading the room. And also, ahead of time, I'm a big, big fan of doing stakeholder analysis, understanding who's going to be in the room, what are they bringing, where are they at? And we borrow a lot from learning experience design, where they really look at the students and, like, where, what are the outcomes they want to drive for those students? And then what are the students bringing into the room at that time? And if we can acknowledge that, then we can better support them. Because if they're very, like, unreceptive to anything, quote-unquote, woo then we, we better be very careful about that stuff because if we if we alienate them, we're not going to be able to take them on any journey. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. And I think it's... Uh, it, it, you can't assume that they will not be, but you can't assume that they will be either, right? So you have to, yeah. like you said, sense the home. Uh, and, and you spend the first little bit of time earning their trust, earning... Yes. You know, making, they're, they're also watching whether you really hold the neutrality of it as well. And... and one of the things that I talk with my colleagues a lot is when groups are doing flip chart work, 
Uh, I, I, and each facilitator has got their own style. I tend to be away from every group, uh, stand away, uh, and just observe the dynamics at play rather than, uh, so my colleagues, and, and, and especially when I see co-facilitate, when I co-facilitate, I love having a co-facilitator who's got a very different style. Uh, he or she may want to walk up to each group and spend a minute and working with them in groups, whereas I like to be step back and observe the room. Uh, so those small things play a role. I love that you brought that up because as a young facilitator, when I was working with co-facilitators, sometimes I would challenge myself and go, well, look what they're doing. Why are they doing that differently? I'm, I'm doing this wrong. But then as I got more comfortable in myself and my role, I began to appreciate these differences. And sometimes it helped me just watching them and the way they behaved. It helped me understand how I differentiate and why I appreciate that. And I can appreciate them for how they are. And then when we come together, we can create this dual kind of experience, which is cool. That was really fascinating to hear you hear you talk about that experience as well. Have you, have you noticed other things about co-facilitators that you appreciate that's just nice to have them along for the journey? Uh, so, so I love co-facilitating with people who've got very... Uh, different styles or different skill sets. So for example, uh, I, I, I design at a very high level flow. I've got others who are very detail oriented. They get all the material together. So where, so they bring in the structure, I bring in the flexibility, right? Uh, they bring in um, some of the ability to ask some probing questions that I may have missed out. So, uh, I've, I've seen that. I've also seen, you know, I've got my nightmare stories of co-facilitation where people have, they walk up to this group and say, you know, I need you to bullet point it, but you guys are using a star as a bullet point. Can you use a dash, please? Just to be consistent with all the other groups. And I'm like, really? If, if, if they want to, <laughs> you want a bullet point with the same font and color and... <laughs> Yes, let it go, right? Uh, it's, yeah, it's sort of OCD facilitation, I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I am, uh, but, but I'm the other one. I, I'm sort of a little bit of a klutz with materials. I kind of move materials and I forget, where the hell did I keep this thing? Uh, and it's great to have someone who keeps an eye on these things for me. Uh, I, or, and I pick up something that they are not necessarily... Uh, when they sometimes say, okay, we'll wrap up this conversation because we need to move into the next uh, area of discussion. And I'm like, you know, we have, we have an agreed signal. And I say, you know what, the quality of the, let's put it to the group. So do we want to wrap this up? I mean, what's, what's the group's uh, uh, thoughts? How, how are, how's the group feeling? If, do we want to move forward? What, what, where's the group at? Uh, rather than us saying, let's move forward, you know? Yeah, I think even if you don't have a lot of, I would say, difference in your facilitation skills, just having someone else in the room noticing things that you maybe didn't notice or just checking in on things, you know, if you're just looking the other way and something happens. And I think, I think especially in Zoom, where your teams or whatever virtual tool you're using, having another set of eyes on all the screens can be really helpful just to notice things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the... Uh the one thing I absolutely love about co-facilitation is the debrief and the feedback that we share with mm. each other, right? That's, for me, the most invaluable. Because when you're 
Um, we have to set that up before, obviously, but you know, this is the kind of feedback I'd like from you. This is what I'd like you to look out. Things that's part of my development. So if you've done that well, you'll get some amazingly uh, significant feedback at the end. One hundred percent. It you know it's similar to the peer review stuff you were talking about the IF doing, right? Where even when you're working with clients, if you've got someone in the room who can give you some honest feedback, it's a, such a great way to improve and grow. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure, uh, do you do a lot of co-facilitation yourself, Douglas? I try to when we can, if the budget allows it. And then we do a weekly facilitation practice where we invite, we bring folks from our community together and, and just try things out. And we always do feedback before we, we shut the meeting down just so that not only do people get advice on how to improve whatever they're experimenting with, but they also get really solid facilitation advice. Oh, maybe you should have prompted this different or right. when, you, when you said this, this was a little confusing. So yeah, it's it's something we try to do as often as possible, but you know, sometimes the budgets just don't, just don't allow for bringing extra heads. Yeah, so if it's in the same town, I sometimes uh, bring in a co-facilitator as an observer, mm. uh, somebody as part of just a learning, you know, because I also say I will have a colleague coming with me and assisting me or working with me on this program. We're not, yeah, yes, we clients say, am I going to get billed for this? No, you're not. But uh, uh, then they understand the value of having two people there. And more importantly, it's growth for both of us. Yeah, it's a good point. And, you know, I love it when we can make it happen and encourage people to do it as well. It's great. It's, it's a lot easier in the virtual world. <laughs> yeah. For sure. <laughs> no flights needed, right? And time zones, no no concerns about time zones. Yeah, no no yeah. flights, no time zones. Yeah. No, but one thing you mentioned about Zoom, for example, right? Uh, or any technology. Even observing who is unmuting themselves, because if they're, if they're just clicking the unmute button, that's a signal for you if you're sensing that somebody wants to say something. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Just uh, observing, keeping track of that, and sometimes... Uh, uh, on digital platforms, we've got to be able to look out for the the cues are different. That's right. Uh, the cues are just different. Yeah, and you know, there's one interface for Zoom called Macro. You basically install it and then log into it like you would Zoom, but it's a different interface, and it shows you who's been talking the most. Oh yeah, and they just get bigger and bigger and bigger. <laughs> oh wow, cool. I, you know, I, but to your point, like if there's um, different cues or signals. If the software could do a better job of pointing those out to the facilitator, it would it would be great. But where we're at today, it's having an extra person that's scanning for that stuff can definitely help out. So I wanted to um, circle back really quick about something that you said in the beginning in our pre-chat. And just wanted to see if there's some more to kind of explore there around this notion of a neutral process facilitator. Yeah, So uh, so there's group process facilitation and then there's facilitative learning right so the group process facilitator is typically neutral so for example when i'm called upon to help a leadership team define their strategy for the next three years um, i i am neutral i i couldn't care less what strategy they come up with as long as the, the group is satisfied with what they have come up with uh, my neutrality. In fact, I often say the more I know about the company and the more I know about their business, the greater the pressure on me to maintain my neutrality and not jump in with my content expertise. But that's a very, very simple 
perspective, but there may be community-based facilitation, there may be community conversations, and uh, there are two points of view there. Uh, and how do I, how do I, or how does any facilitator hold their space and be neutral uh, in in that? Not take uh, this this side or that side, right? I mean, now one of the most challenging conversations I ever facilitated was a group working on their diversity and inclusion strategy for moving forward because they had feedback from an employee survey that. The company was not diverse enough, that the, the dad created a very inclusive culture. And this leadership team came together and were having this conversation. And some of the stuff that was being said in the room, I had to take a, you know, remind myself, hold your tongue. This is not your place. Uh, you want to just jump in. So I really felt my neutrality being questioned. Uh, myself and self-awareness. So I, I kept stepping further back and letting their conversation happen without even being in earshot of the conversation uh, <laughs> because they, they were just capturing it and putting it up on a wall and then leading them through clar- clarifying questions. But it's I think that neutrality is such a critical piece. That's interesting. Do you think that has to do with your desire, your style to step back and observe the room from a distance so that it helps you keep that neutrality? Uh, it helps, but it's, to be honest, it's not, it's a learned style. Mm. I have stepped in uh, early on. I have uh, be, received feedback. I have made my mistake. I often say that uh, the facilitators have been in this profession for over seven, eight, ten years, we've been very fortunate to learn through trial and error. We, we made some errors, we got feedback, etc. Today, I think there's less room for errors, so which means peer reviews. Uh, I like what you said, if you're doing these practice sessions, that's when you got to put people through situations where are they stepping back, are they jumping into sharing their opinion? Uh, what's the kind of question? Is it a leading question? Is it is there a implicit bias behind that question? Those things we need to deal with in a lab or in a practice environment, because when we are in service with the actual group, we have to be even more careful of holding our space in, in a neutral, uh, in, a, in a neutral space, whatever. If that makes sense. So I've learned this skill of stepping back as a way of uh, managing my derailers. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Well, Vinay, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. I want to just give you an opportunity to leave our listeners with some final thoughts. Well, um, so I would say a couple of things. One is facilitation is here to stay. Facilitation uh, can be used in many different contexts. Every profession needs to learn how to use it. And in this time where uh, whether it's in society, communities, in, in uh, where you live, in your business, there's an opportunity to bring people together and leverage the wisdom of the group. So uh, I, I always tell people, you don't want to be a sage on the stage, you want to be a guide by, your, by the side. And that's what a facilitator does. Excellent. Well, today it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Great. Thanks so much, Douglas. Stay safe. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Control the Room. Don't forget to subscribe to receive updates when new episodes are released. 
And if you want more, head over to our blog, where I post weekly articles and resources about working better together. VoltageControl.com. 